This morning's scripture reading comes from Isaiah, chapter 59, all 21 verses. So buckle in. (laughs) Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve a clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, and desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We, ho- we hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turned from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, 
and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Good morning. With Pastor Dave on vacation this past week, it is my honor to be the one that gets to bring you God's word. In the last few years, we have seen the world around us ask fundamental questions without having the wherewithal to answer any of them adequately or honestly. For example, during her examination by the Senate Judiciary Committee, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson was asked, can you provide a definition for the word woman? She responded, can I provide a definition? No, I can't. Senator Marsha Blackburn, puzzled, asked, you can't? Judge Jackson then said, not in this context, I'm not a biologist. Of course, many chuckled at her answer, and there is a certain humor to it, but Judge Jackson's answer was politically calculated without regard for truth. There's nothing new about politically calculated words, but the fact that a question with such an obvious answer was given in one of our nation's most serious and consequential settings, and that she was subsequently confirmed for her appointment, betrays a culture whose lips have spoken lies, whose tongue mutters wickedness, and whose thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Our culture is one so thoroughly corrupted that basic creational knowledge that male and female he created them has been utterly abandoned. When the current cultural current is so bent on overturning foundational truths, to many, truth itself becomes a casualty of the cultural onslaught. We all feel this, and we know something is amiss. Something is fundamentally wrong with the world in ways that we hadn't felt so acutely in the past. One of the things I want us all to see this morning is that the problems we face today are not fundamentally new problems. And more importantly, the answers, the solutions, are not new solutions. These are, in fact, problems that stem all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and solutions as old as God's judgment, or I'm sorry, his promise, that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. In our text this morning, we find the nation of Judah in crisis. Remember, Judah is a nation to whom God had made covenant promises. God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had freed their great-grandchildren by the hand of Moses and Aaron and brought them into the promised land through the leadership of Joshua. He had established the kingdom of Israel by by King David and his sons. Isaiah prophesied during the reign of four Davidic kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Three of these kings were judged positively in the book of 2 Kings, having done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It is only Ahaz that was judged harshly as an evildoer. Yet it is plain in Isaiah chapter 59 that the people bear great guilt and the consequences are dark. The chapter begins with a declaration that a separation had been made between them and God due to the iniquities that is, the sins of the people. Because of their sin, God does not hear their prayers. It is difficult to imagine a situation more grave, more serious than for your words to be unheard by God. I suppose it is an earthly picture of hell. One has no appeal to God for salvation, for by then your judgment has been settled for all eternity. In hell there is only constant fear, pain, anger, and malice without end without anyone to save, without anyone to intervene for you. 
But God is gracious. And we'll see at the end of the passage that God is faithful, even when we are not. Before we dig into the text, let's pray that the Lord would guide our minds, grant us understanding, and apply his word to our hearts. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can understand it, that we can gather together to study, to examine what it says. I pray that you would grant us understanding. I pray that you would help us to apply these things to our hearts, to our lives, to our families, to our situations. I pray that you would speak powerfully this morning through your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning has four main sections. First, in verses 1 to 8, is the matter of the sin of the people of Judah. It is not a flattering picture of how God's holy people had fallen. In verses 8 to 16, we see the dramatic consequences of their sin. Of course, sin leads to God's judgment, and that is what we see in verses 15 to 20. And the passage concludes with God's covenant faithfulness to the people of Judah. Despite their rejection of him, God is not done with them. And after working through the entire chapter, we'll look at how the New Testament can help us understand and apply this text to ourselves this morning. Let's take a closer look at the first section of Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 8. All men, at one time or another, will question God, whether it be his ability to save, his power, his will, his goodness, or any other attribute of God. God, of course, understands this, and in our passage this morning, it begins by recognizing the weakness of the people of God to believe in his power to save or his ability to hear their prayers. By expressing that his hand is not shortened, that it cannot save or his ear dull, that it cannot hear, he is explaining to the people that he has chosen to not hear, chosen to not intervene to save. He is declaring their guilt and thereby protecting his name from their slander. This is a hard thing for them to hear, for by declaring this, God is telling them that they are the problem. It is their iniquities, their sins that have put them at odds with God. Recall that Adam was put out of the Garden of Eden because of his sin. Sin has serious consequences, not just in eternity, but in this world. But before those consequences are made clear, Isaiah enumerates their sin. For though in verse 12 it says they know their iniquities, they are clearly not truly grappling with their own sin, with their own guilt. In verses 3 to 8, Isaiah lists many of the sins that had made a separation between Judah and their God. It is their sins that have hidden, excuse me, it is their sins that have hidden his face from them, so that he does not hear. Notice it is Isaiah as the prophet of the Lord who is speaking to a group of people and is excluding himself from that group. Isaiah uses the pronouns you and they. Isaiah as the prophet of the Lord is speaking God's words to God's covenant people. He is telling them of their sin and their guilt. He lists many sins. He says in verse 3, your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. In the Bible, blood is spoken of as the life, Genesis 9-4, as the life of a person or an animal. Having blood on your hands was symbolic of murder. Isaiah lists many more sins, speaking lies and wickedness, courts marked only by dishonesty, things that are so bad that the things that are meant to give life, conception and birth, produce iniquity and death. In verse 7, Isaiah quotes Proverbs 1.16, Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed blood. Notice the different parts of the body that are said to be corrupted by sin and bringing forth sin. Hands are defiled with blood. Fingers with iniquity. Lips 
with lies. The tongue mutters wickedness. Violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. Even the thoughts of their mind are of iniquity. Sin is wholly corrupting. The body is full of corruption and brings forth only evil. And this is the people of God, of which Isaiah speaks. These are the people that God had called as his own, with whom he dwelt in the temple in their capital city. A people so corrupted by sin bring only desolation and destruction in their highways, in stark contrast to the way of peace. Their paths are instead lacking justice. They are crooked. This stands in stark contrast to the Psalms of David, such as Psalm 17.5, where David writes, By the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. This is a people that has abandoned God and his word. That is sin. And Judah is living deeply in sin. In the second main section of the chapter from verses 8 to 16, Isaiah describes the consequences of the sins of Judah. Namely, what is lacking is the, in their land. Notice the therefore in verse 9. The sin of the people of Judah leads to consequences. It is because of the sin of the people that there is no peace, no justice, no righteousness, no light, no salvation, no truth, no uprightness, and no intercessor in the land. An unrighteous people can produce uh, an unrighteous people cannot produce a righteous nation. An unrighteous people have no claim upon God for anything. An unrighteous people can only rightly expect God's judgment. Judah is a nation not not marked by the covenant blessings of God that he had promised to his people in Deuteronomy 28, but instead a distinct lack of the fruit of God's blessing. In fact, in verse 10, Isaiah paraphrases some of the covenant curses found in Deuteronomy 28, verse 28 to 29. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. I drew our attention to the pronouns in verses 2 to 8. But notice how in verse 9, Isaiah begins using the first person plural pronoun, we and our, from verse 9 to 13. This is significant because the sin of, and guilt belongs to you and they, a group which I, from which Isaiah excludes himself. But the consequences of that sin, of their sin, belong to all Judah, including Isaiah, and presumably by the, faith, the faithful remnant inside Judah. These consequences are covenantal and cannot be escaped, even by the righteous. Things are not as they should be in Judah. The people knew what justice was, yet they lacked it. They hoped for light. They still had some right desires, but those desires were unmet. For behold, darkness, rather than brightness, gloom. This gloom is more than mere darkness. It is a sense of foreboding or despondency. Those walking in gloom are going from bad to worse. I mentioned earlier that verse 10 is a paraphrase of the covenant curses found in Deuteronomy 28. In groping for the wall, we're meant to see that the people of Judah had no point of reference. They were looking for something safe that would reorient themselves to the world around them. Have you ever been in a place so dark you could see nothing and could only reach out and hope that you could find something to help you regain your bearings, a light switch, a door frame, maybe a piece of furniture? Recall that frustration, fear, and anxiety. 
then imagine your whole life being filled with such feelings. This was what life was like for the people of Judah. Isaiah is describing life under the curse of God. For even at noon, the people were stumbling as though the sun had already set and darkness was prevailing upon the earth. This is not something that can be explained by natural causes. The Lord had indeed stricken Judah with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. How fearful it is to live under the curses of God. There's no justice in the land, no salvation. Isaiah recognizes what is wrong. He says, our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Isaiah includes himself in this by using the first person plural, our and us and we. God's covenant people have abandoned their covenant Lord. And consequently, it is the covenant people that are suffering. The people desire justice and salvation. They recognize they need both. But as verse 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The people even seem to recognize this, for Isaiah very clearly uh, says the people know their iniquities. Paul describes this in Romans 1.18 when he describes the human condition. He writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The people of Judah are not interested in truth, because they have turned back from following God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Have you ever wondered how Israel in its long history went from wandering went and wandered away from the Lord? We read of the ten plagues in Egypt, the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, and not shortly thereafter, they're worshiping idols at Mount Sinai. What happened? Or today, we see rampant sexual confusion around us and wonder, how can people be so blind to the reality of two biological sexes? How can they believe anything else? Isaiah tells us very simply when he describes the sinful human condition as speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. From the very beginning, mankind has been in revolt against God. Satan tempted Eve, and her response was not faithfulness to God, but instead revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Today we are seeing a very clear truth that was less clear to us in the past. The veil has been removed, so to speak. It is, as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. When the truth is what you cannot tolerate, you must suppress it. You must fight it. We all end up conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words that console us, that justify our sinful desires and our revolt against our Creator. It takes enormous psychological energy to live in such a way, for the truth is ever before us. For what can be known about God is plain, for his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So we are without excuse. Romans 3, 19 to 20. Have you ever tried holding a beach ball under the water? It cannot be easily done. It takes concentration and energy to do so. In the very moment you lose focus, that ball rapidly finds its way to the surface. Imagine living your life like that, constantly suppressing the truth, to keep it out of your conscious mind. For the moment truth is heard or seen, your conscience condemns you. For you know you stand condemned before God and his law. That is why in verse 15, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. 
you become like a hunted animal. Some may call this a kind of cancel culture. Step out of line and your good name will be destroyed. The unrighteous hate the righteous, for the life of the righteous is a condemnation to them. This is why evil must be praised. This is why our culture requires us to affirm homosexual marriage, celebrate Pride Month, and legally sanction abortion. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 1, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we too today can become prey when we depart from evil and speak and live the truth. I suspect there are some in this room today who struggle daily to suppress the truth, to prevent it from exposing your guilt and sin. Know this, you will never win that struggle. God's truth is always there because God is eternal. His truth is eternal and will ever be there for you to suppress. Do you really think you can win that struggle? But God's grace and forgiveness in Christ can be yours. And you can surrender that struggle to suppress the truth and give yourself to Christ. It might seem like a kind of death to do so, and it is. But there is new life on the other side of that death. It is a better life than you can can imagine. It is eternal life. Isaiah has more to say concerning the consequences for abandoning truth. In verse 14, he writes, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public square, and uprightness cannot enter. Justice and righteousness are not welcome in a land where people have turned their back from following God. Justice is turned away as an unwelcome guest, and righteousness keeps its distance. The phrase truth has stumbled in the public square is a little bit puzzling. Truth is supposed to be powerful, unassailable. When an innocent person is accused, they appeal to the truth and expect the truth to set them free. But that's not what we find in verse 14. Truth has no real power in this situation. It has stumbled. The word in Hebrew could also be translated as fall, cast down, or feeble. Regardless of how it is translated, it is clear that truth doesn't stand a chance in Judah. The very next verse even says truth is lacking. It's not that it just isn't enough of it, it's that it's not there at all. The people people of Judah had found a kind of success in suppressing the truth. But that success had come at a great cost. Their land has become a kind of living hell. In the Psalms, we see how Israel and Judah were to orient themselves the truth. In Psalm 25.5, we read, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Psalm 43.3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Psalm 45.4, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Psalm 51.6, behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being. Psalm 86.11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. So it's no wonder we read in verse 15 that the Lord saw it and was displeased that there was no justice. When there is no truth, there can be no justice. God's people had wandered so far from what he had called them to be. This was God's covenant people. The people he had redeemed out of slavery. The children of Abraham, with whom God had made covenant. This was the people that settled in his land, promised to Abraham and his offspring. 
When God sees, he judges. At creation, God created something each day, then he saw that it was good. When God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, he sent a flood. God sent angels to Sodom and Gomorrah to see whether they had all done altogether according to the outcry that has come to him. So when we read that the Lord saw it in verse 15, we should expect that God is about to judge and act. In verse 16, God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. God is looking for something to, someone to do something, but no one is there to intervene for justice. But God didn't miss a beat. He's immediately engaged to act, to intercede. The sentence doesn't even finish, and God is ready. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Truth stumbled, we saw just before, but God's righteousness does not stumble. It is powerful. In fact, we see that God is prepared for battle. We see the arm of the Lord earlier in Isaiah 53, where Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah then goes on to prophesy of the servant of the Lord, whom we know to be Jesus Christ. The arm of the Lord in Isaiah 53 and again in 59, his own arm brought salvation, is none other than Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. This arm is unexpected. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. God is promising to send an intercessor, someone to bring salvation, bring righteousness righteousness to a place with only unrighteousness. And by bringing righteousness, he will restore truth and justice for a people oppressed by injustice and iniquity. In verse 17, we read of God's breastplate, helmet, and garments. These are all designed for battle. The list may seem familiar to us because it is almost identical to the list given in Ephesians chapter 6. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Interestingly, these are only defensive weapons. There's no sword, no spear, no bow. They're seemingly enough. God was displeased that there was no justice, so he's going to bring it. He declares the standard in verse 18. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. This is God's justice. According to their deeds. This is all that they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. God will be feared. He may patiently delay, allowing some to not fear his name, but in the end, he will be feared. Oh, that we would fear him now and not learn to fear him in his wrath. But God declares he will not only come to execute justice on the evildoer, but he will come as a redeemer to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. God is gracious and will redeem those who abandon their lives of sin. The chapter ends with the fourth main section in verse 21, where God declares his covenant purposes. He promises his spirit and his words. He declares this to his covenant people who had abandoned him. God had made covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and many others. He is not going to go back on those promises. As Paul says in Romans 3, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So the people of Judah, God promised this. So I'm sorry, so to the people of Judah, God promised his spirit upon them. And the words that he had put in their mouths shall not depart from them or of their offspring 
or their children's offspring. As New Testament Christians, we know that this promise came to pass. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be among his people. Yet like truth and justice during the time of Isaiah, Jesus was rejected. He taught many things while ministering to Jew and Gentile, leaving four gospels that we have to this very day. But Jesus was crucified at the insistence of Israel. Yet he rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and at Pentecost gave his Holy Spirit to those that believed upon him. This heritage is ours today. It is God's word that we hear and read from his word. It is his Holy Spirit that unites us to him and to one another. Nearly 2,000 years after Christ's death, God's words and God's spirit are still among us. They still stand as a testament to God's faithfulness and God's justice. So what does this mean to us today? God's covenant with ethnic Israel passed away with Jesus at his death. Yet we know that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So there's much for us to learn from this passage today, surely more than we have time to learn. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension fundamentally transformed the world. So first, we must remember that the new covenant under which we now live is a very different covenant than which was given to Israel. Israel was covenanted to God through the physical circumcision of all males. The covenant was therefore ethnic, meaning it was tied to a particular people, set apart through a physical act, uniting a people group in a a particular geographic region. The United States, China, Panama, France, Ethiopia, and all other nations, for that matter, are not ethnically covenanted with God, as Israel and Judah had been. The new covenant is a spiritual covenant, with spiritual markers, not ethnic ones. Baptism is now the sign of the covenant, uniting people in Christ in any nation of the world. So we need to be careful in making direct application from this text today. Second, there are some specific things about this text that help us understand this passage in light of the New Testament. First, Paul quotes Isaiah 59, 7 to 8 in Romans 3. In verses 15 and 16 of Romans 3, Paul is writing about the spiritual condition of all men, Jew and Gentile. In quoting Isaiah 59, 59, 7 to 8, Paul is clearly teaching that all men are like what Isaiah describes in chapter 59. Israel's problems were the same problems of men in all places, in all times. They are sinners in need of a redeemer. So too today, apart from the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit, all men are like those described in Isaiah 59. We've already noticed that the armor of God in verse 17 is quoted and expanded upon in Ephesians 6. Let's take a look at that. I'll give you a moment to flip your Bible there. Ephesians 6, 11 to 20. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, 
And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In Isaiah, God put on his weapons. In Ephesians 6, those weapons are given to us to wear. But we are given even more. In Ephesians 4.8, Paul writes, When Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Jesus' ascension changed everything about the nature of the world because he gave gifts to his followers. It is his spirit which arms us today with spiritual weapons needed to put away falsehood, each one of us speaking the truth with his neighbor. Ephesians 4.25 by arming ourselves with the whole armor of God, we are able to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are to do this that we may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day, to stand firm. Did you notice, too, that our enemy is named? We are armed to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan is our enemy, and we are fighting a spiritual war. So what does this mean for New Testament Christians today? It means unlike the people of Judah in Isaiah 59, when there was no man, no one to intercede, we are the ones God has given to this generation to intercede. God has equipped us with his spirit and the whole armor of God for this very hour, for the very great needs of our day. God has given us all we need for the battles we face today. One of the new weapons is shoes for our feet, which provide the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We have what we need for the battle, so we should be ready to fight, not hesitant, but equipped, prepared, ready. He has given us weapons to protect us against the onslaught of the enemy. Notice we now have the belt of truth. We are God's truth bearers. We must not be ashamed of the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So to be ashamed of the truth is to be ashamed of Jesus. We have all been equipped with the truth, and so we must not set it down, but instead wield it for that is why it was given to us. One of my great heroes in life is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who survived the Soviet prison camps as an enemy of the state and who later wrote about them. He once said, the simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. One word of truth outweighs the world. Our world is full of lies today, and as followers of Christ, we must refuse to participate in them and instead be a people of truth, standing firmly, unashamedly, boldly, knowing it is a weapon belonging to the Lord Almighty. We also now have the sword of the Spirit, which is called the sword of God, the Word of God. We are to wield those weapons against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are powerful enemies, but equipped with the whole armor of God, we have everything we need to fight the battles the Lord puts before us. Paul writes more concerning these battles in 2 Corinthians 2, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6. He writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Our weapons are not the kind of weapons the world is accustomed to. They are compared to them, 
but they are of an altogether different kind. These weapons have divine power, designed to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. These are apologetic weapons, designed to make enemies into brothers, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. These are weapons meant to defend the faith against false religion, philosophy, and every vain thing. They are meant to convert the nations through the proclamation of the gospel message. These are spiritual weapons used to fight a spiritual war. They must also be wielded spiritually. That is to say, we cannot put them to use in a worldly way. As we learned last week in James 5, we must be patient. We must be humble. We must not repay evil for evil. We must leave it to the Lord to avenge. We must love our enemies. We must overcome evil with good. This crooked generation in which we live has abandoned truth, and so we should not be surprised at the consequences. Do you sense that justice is far from us? Is our culture groping for the wall like the blind? Our nation, our world, like the people of Isaiah's day, needs someone to intercede, someone to bring salvation. We have begun to see institution after institution surrender to the spirit of the age. The church may eventually stand alone against the world's, uh, stand alone among the world's institutions in proclaiming the truth. But we do not stand alone. For if God is for us, who can be against us? God has equipped us through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit for this very task. We are not the saviors of the world, but we are soldiers of the King of Kings. And we bear his message of salvation to all who will believe. The truth, justice, righteousness, and light this generation needs are available through the righteous one, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God with us, the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is my prayer this morning that, like Paul, we would bear the whole armor of God in the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the kingdom of God, bringing his righteousness to bear in a world that has forsaken him. And for those not yet in the kingdom, not yet sons of the King, that you would repent and believe. His righteousness may may be yours. Call upon his name. For if you do so in repentance of sin and belief that Jesus died for you, you too may receive his life, his spirit, and everlasting life. God make it so.